Hi everyone, this uh, is a special podcast that I'm really happy to be sharing with everyone. I had an opportunity this fall to meet Dr. Simna Scott, who's a highly accomplished professional in the field of genetics and marine biology. And as a woman in STEM, she's uh, taught numerous workshops. She's presented extensively throughout the world and has traveled throughout the world. And her contributions are evident from her publications, her speaking engagements, and she's committed to inspiring and empowering the next generation of scientists. And she cares very deeply about ocean equity, and she is on a mission. And I was uh, really happy to catch up with her after the Sustainable Oceans Conference that we met, and we recorded this podcast. I think you'll... uh, enjoy it very much and there's a lot to learn about cultural competency and how we can apply that in our work in co-management and many other settings that involve the sciences obviously but in the context of our podcast that's what uh, made me interested and i hope you enjoy it's really great to see you again it's been uh, just a few short weeks since you were in uh, halifax nova scotia And uh, I'll be honest that you were a real draw for me when I was uh, trying to decide whether or not to go to the Sustainable Oceans uh, Conference. And uh, the topic that you were speaking about there of cultural competence, I couldn't actually think of a more relevant topic in the sense uh, for me uh, working in co-management and could see how relevant it was and especially in STEM in in particular. So uh, you didn't disappoint when I got there. I learned that you were on a mission. and uh, it, On a mission, yes. Yeah, it was a great talk. I really appreciate it. It's stuck uh, to me ever since. And I know the Marine Affairs students that were in attendance all spoke really highly about it as well. So oh, maybe, we, maybe we could start there. What is the mission that you're on? Right. So I think over over COVID, you know, I, I think we were all inside and a little, I don't know about you, but that made me think about the world a lot differently. And I started to think about how connected we all are, but then also I started to think about some of the inequities that I was seeing, not just in, you know, medical care, but also in, in, in particular ocean spaces. And so I started to get interested in, in inequities in ocean spaces. And so then I thought, well, what what can we do about this and how do we make it better? And then I realized that we can't really solve some of the major crises in the world like climate change, um, which is uh, entirely interrelated to ocean systems, unless we also look at um, social inequities because we can't get we can't get to that point where um, we can make serious change if we're not focused on on the injustices at hand that are socially derived. So, so that's, yeah, so that's my mission is to try to figure out how in, in the ocean space can we better prepare ourselves to do right by all people. And I think that requires each of us to look inside and to really ask ourselves, how culturally competent am I? And am I, am I causing more harm to other groups? Or am I working to make sure that their voices are equally heard and that their communities are equally supported? And that means different things to different people around the world, depending on where you are. Like I'm in Panama, and um, that might mean for me understanding more Nobe culture, Nobe indigenous cultures. It might mean more for me understanding Afro-Caribbean culture. As someone who is of African descent, I'm from the United States, but I don't share necessarily the same historical uh, background as people living in Panama. So for me, that means I also need to understand their particular uh, or the particular challenges that they they face as a community. Nice. Yeah, The uh, there's no doubt that the pandemic gave us lots of opportunity to reflect on things. And one of the heartwarming things I feel happened during the pandemic, if there was a silver lining, I guess, to a pandemic. But uh, <laughs> in uh, in a lot of our communities, it was interesting how 
it provided the opportunity for so many Inuit people in the north to take back to the land and spend so much time outside because when Canada really got locked down, it was in uh, March month, which is a really beautiful time of year in the uh, in the north for snowmobiling and getting out to cabins. And there were so many nice stories of people who really appreciated the opportunity to have months off and to get out and start to learn cultural skills again. And it was a bit ironic that there was some small form of equity in that for people who don't always uh, get to go out and practice those things, unfortunately. And uh, I also wanted to touch on, like, your positionality. Like, please do share that for listeners, because that was a really interesting part of your talk uh, that resonated yeah. with me, that uh, you're a very dynamic person with a really interesting background, and you've traveled all over, and 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 the way that you reflect on positionality is really insightful, and I, I think more people in in the natural sciences need to think about their positionalities more. Maybe it's becoming more mainstream, but I'm not sure it's everywhere yet. It's everywhere yet, especially not in the science, especially when you have scientists that go around the world and do quote unquote parachute science. You know, um, I, I think if you are going to go abroad and extract information, you in particular very much so need to think about your positionality and the power and privilege you have to be able to do that. And and whether and whether or not you're causing more harm or if you're actually contributing back to society. But with respect to positionality, yeah, I, as a as a black female from the United States who comes from a middle class background, I'm like hyper aware of uh, of how people view me, because in the US, you can't escape that you are constantly put in a box, or you are told you have to be this way or that way. And, you know, when I walk into a room, I'm immediately um, aware of my surroundings, because I have to be I don't have the choice of not being aware, because there are some things in there that could be harmful to me, because of who I am. And if you are from the norm, the quote, unquote, mostly white, mostly male norm that societies tend to wrap themselves around, particularly in the United, well, actually worldwide, I should say. But, you know, in terms of reaching, reaching standards of whiteness, that when you are further away from the norm, the more aware and hyper aware you have to be of where you stand so that you can protect yourself, but then also you can know when to pipe up and say the right thing to sort of um, maybe sway or influence other people that are around you. And I especially think that's true in the sciences. Um, you know, I, I, I can't say enough how many times I've been in laboratories where I'm the only, maybe the only female, but only the black female, right? And how people will begin to make their own opinions of how you should act, how you should speak, how you should behave, um, all of those things that you have to overcome. Um, and then of course, take me and put me in another country and all of that changes again. And all of that changes for everybody. That's the thing. It's, it's for everybody. But I do think if you're closer to the norm, you don't necessarily have to think about that even when you travel, because that might not be something that you feel you need to deal with ever. You should, but you have the privilege of not having to think about that when you travel because whiteness is in many other countries also upheld as the norm and as what is most desirable. So it depends on where you are in the world. And, um, you know, I think I told the story during my talk, I was in Tanzania walking down the beach and it's like, I think as a black person, I, every time I go to Africa, I'm like, Oh, I want to like reconnect with my roots. Of course, I don't know where those roots are. I don't know if I'm East African, West African, you know, that's the tragedy of, of, um, of slavery and the, and the history of slavery in the United States is a lot of us don't know our ancestry. We don't know our roots. And so then you go back to Africa and you're in, you know, let's say I'm in Tanzania and I'm like, Oh, I'm here with the people. And then they call you cappuccino. And I'm like, okay, well, I guess that's not 
I guess I'm not really accepted <laughs> the way that I thought I was going to be. <laughs> and then, you know, in South Africa, <laughs> in South Africa, you know, they still have the, the categorizations of people and, um, and, you know, I was considered colored there, which in the U.S. you would never say that. So, you know, there's so many things that you have to think about when you travel, especially when you travel as a, as a black person around the world, that um, my positionality is very different than someone else's. And also, if you're traveling with someone else, to understand that their experience is going to be very different than your own. Um, there have been many times, even as the director of a study abroad program, where the check comes out and people don't give me the check. They give it to one of my white colleagues. And I look at them and I say, actually, I'm the lady with the money. So <laughs> what's going on here? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, so, that is funny. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, just one point you brought up earlier, I was kind of curious to ask you about when when you used the, the terminology to pipe up. Like, did it did it take you a while to sort of find your voice and become more comfortable piping up? I know you're very comfortable now, and certainly have no, or that's my impression from the short times we've we've been together. That uh, you're very articulate, obviously, and will speak up. But did it take a while to get that confidence? Yeah, absolutely. I but I think, you know, the more I experienced my personal injustices, I think the more determined I was to figure out where they were coming from and not being afraid to actually speak up when things are not right. Um not just for me, but for other people around me that I I learned over time. I think particularly in graduate school was was not an easy time for me. And I, you know, there were times I was really down, but then with the support of loving parents and friends, you know, having their support and saying, no, you have this, you can do it. You just need to find the strength within you to continue and keep going. And I did. And then I spoke up because <laughs> I didn't want to see that happen to other students coming behind me. Um, and, and, you know, in my current work, I don't want other people to experience injustice. And it does affect your whole being. It affects your psyche. It affects your well-being. And uh, I, I, I think it's important for all of us to stand up for each other. Oh, definitely. And it takes a lot of courage. It's not like you're in settings or any of us are in settings sometimes when we want to speak up where we're uh, we got even numbers or we're usually outnumbered by quite a lot in those settings. And the whole topic of cultural competence, that, that's obviously something that I was really keen to talk more to you about. And in our uh, world of co-management, I guess there's often uh, a mix of indigenous people with uh, people from government normally or different scientific backgrounds dominate a lot of the discussions but like what was cultural competence to you and and where does somebody start i guess if they they want to become more culturally competent right so first i think you have to start with yourself you have to know who you are and that means taking a deep dive into understanding your own culture so you have to understand your own culture in order to understand how you are influencing or impacting someone else. And so that that's number one, right? And then cultural competence comes when you are able to integrate others' ideas, thoughts, hopes, dreams, and desires um, into, for example, company culture, that that is a norm, that it's not the exception, that um, all cultures are respected and that there's an understanding that anyone else's perspective is coming from their lived experience and from their culture and that the a dominant culture should not ignore or repel or, um, you know, find less than this, someone else's culture, right? So cultural competence is actually having the ability to walk between different worlds, different cultures, and also integrate um, ideas and thoughts into processes of governance, 
of um, you know how we develop policies, how we move right on a daily basis. And but you can't do that if you don't know who you are. And I think a lot of the the problems we have when it comes to setting policies between you know let's say a plot of land that um, might might have quote unquote dual ownership between different sectors of society, you know, whatever it might be, is that one side might it might not or likely is not practicing cultural competency. They are not taking the steps to be able to understand the other side's perspective based off of their history and their culture. And then that leads to clashes and it leads to all kinds of um, misunderstandings and also harm, a lot of harm. And when you think that because of who you are, you get to do whatever you want and you've never taken the time to stop and consider your own culture and how you could be doing harm. Um, that's problematic on, on all fronts, all levels. This whole point about knowing yourself, uh, I remember when I was doing my own research, uh, the whole idea of writing a positionality statement, I think was the hardest Thing that I actually did. I didn't realize how little I knew myself and had to keep being pushed basically by reviewers and friends and colleagues to go deeper and deeper. And uh, in some ways, it felt like there was a lot of vulnerability there, but just really digging into that and trying to understand uh, who I am and what privileges I have and certainly was ignorant to how many privileges I have. I don't want to go over them all now on this podcast, but there's many. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. uh, it was uh, it was quite a shocking process to go through. And I know every chance I get now, I, uh, I, I encourage people to try to write a positionality statement and take yeah. the time to keep updating it and keep it dynamic because I, I feel like it's going to ever change to the more we learn and the more we become culturally competent we're going to think about things that we hadn't quite thought about before and mm -hmm. that seems to be happening to me so often and on a regular basis that uh, it'll be a an evergreen document for sure yeah absolutely and i i think um the more you can do that and you know realize that it's a it's a work in progress that you know, the better off you'll be and the better off we'll all be. Because when you walk into a room, you know, well, first of all, I always tell, I always tell my students, I'm like, you're never the smartest person in the room and you need to practice intellectual humility at all times. You know, yeah. I, I have, I have walked through forests with young kids um, from no big communities who know all the trees. I don't know any of the trees. I don't know the names. I'm not from the tropics. So I'm grateful and happy when I can meet younger people who know a lot more than I do about any given topic or, or, you know, know every frog in the forest. And it's amazing to me how much you can really learn when you practice intellectual humility and when you actually um, also have a, a growth mindset. That's something else that I, I definitely instill in my students is, is, is your intellectual ability is limitless. It's not fixed. And I think a lot of people really believe that, oh, this is all I can do. This is all I'm going to do. And that's not true at all. Why do you think humility is so hard for people to practice? I think that's really interesting. Like, wh mm. Why is it so hard to believe that, I'm sort of thinking in an indigenous context now, that somebody who's grown up and learned from elders and so on and, and knows all about, take like a species like a polar bear, like why would it be so hard for someone to actually believe that, you, you know, that people in a particular community might actually know way more right. <laughs> than yeah. uh, the scientific community? Well, yeah, you bring up a really good point, which is different ways of knowing, right? But why is uh, science mainstream science so opposed against you know the great ivory tower right we are all taught and indoctrinated into this belief that you know if you go to university you know more and if you go to graduate school you know a lot more and if you get a phd well then you know everything right or you're supposed right. to and the reality is we don't know anything none of us not one of us 
and it is a system that is entrenched in um i think uh, again it's a cultural belief system that you know probably in the us for example that would have come out of out of europe out of um british school systems uh in in new england exact where i'm from you know new england that is definitely the case and um you know and that goes back to to again the the norm for those countries which is white and male so the the attitude is well the closer you can be to that norm then everybody who can convene around the norm then we're all right then everybody's right and your degree values and you value and this is the value system that we base everything off of and if you're outside of that well then it doesn't matter so we have to overcome that, right? And that's something that is a huge barrier to all of us is in ignoring different ways of knowing. Definitely. So why do you think it's like for cultural competency, like why, why do you think it's so important in STEM, for example, in science? And yeah. uh, definitely refreshing that there's people like yourself out there bringing this forward. So how, like, why would you argue it's so important in this um, field in particular? I think because it's exclusive by nature, uh, the the whole, the entire thing, right? You have to, I, I basically got a PhD to join a club. We're joining a club, right? It's a club that you have to join to be considered even legitimate to make an opinion in many mm-hmm. cases. And, and that is exclusive, inherently exclusive. And whoever, the people who get to decide who gets to go into the club are the people at the highest levels of education and um you know and again the further you are from the norm the more difficult it is for you to cross those barriers to get into school to have the resources and a lot of that's done by design and it has been for centuries right um you know if you look at the united states and that they just decided to vote down affirmative action that's going to have major consequences for people like me being able to go into programs to be able to express my opinions and ideas and perhaps how dare I, you know, change the system. But nobody wants the system to change because it benefits people who aren't like me. So, you know, this is this is a never ending situation. It's about power and it's about privilege. And if I'm not going to school because I can't afford to, for example, or because of whatever barrier there might be, and climate change is affecting communities that look like me the most and i'm not there because no one values my knowledge well then i can't stand up for my community amongst the people that have the power so that's why it's so important to me is because we know worldwide that the vast majority of people that are being impacted by climate change are those in coastal regions and they are mostly black and brown people that are being affected the most and i you know i just wrote a paper with 20 other scientists about the tropical majority and and the great need to decolonize science for this very reason the communities aren't being represented because the people at the top particularly in academia and these you know climate think tanks and all these things they don't represent the people that are actually on the ground experiencing it the most yeah, I'd love for you to uh, send along that article. If it's open access, I would yeah, uh, I, I could put I, it in the podcast uh, sure. description below and happy to refer people to it and re- would be really uh, interested in reading it myself, obviously. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the projects I'm working on right now, I have a, a class of uh, people or a cohort, I guess I could say, of about 26 uh, I'll describe them as really smart stock assessment scientist and biologist, and uh, and we're all talking about indigenous co-management. And in one of our sessions, somebody used a term that really made me chuckle: that they all wanted to become uh, co-conspirators. So they all self-selected into this cohort. So I think okay. they are coming at it from a a good perspective and want to 
do well and change systems and so on. But what advice would you give to a group like that? Because they want to make change, but at the same time, they're still embedded within, uh, in this case, the bureaucracy of the government of Canada. So there's yeah. systems that they find themselves in and and they're looking for practical uh, ways, I guess, to be co-conspirators or to make change. Does, does any kind of thoughts come to your mind on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't dealt with it so much in a large bureaucratic system. I, I mean, I guess if you consider the nation of Panama, 4.1 people, a bureaucratic system. I mean, I think I think that, that counts. That, that counts. That's fair, right? And universities <laughs> count. They're big bu- bureaucracies. Exactly. Well, well, I'm in a very small town, a small island, you know, archipelago, and in in having dealt with some local conservation issues, you know, I think the biggest thing is making connections with people. That's it. The more you can meet with people, um, the more that you understand what the actual need is. Because once you figure out what the need is, then, you know, your mission is to try to figure out how to how to make it happen, right? And if you're in a bureaucratic system, that can seem daunting. But I think the more that you involve the people with the need, the more that you can bring them with you to the places you need to go, the more that you can, you know, have them write or bring their voices to the table, the the easier it is to accomplish a mission. And because I think what happens is we think it's an extractive thing. You go to a community, you might ask a few questions and then you're like, okay, I'm going to take this information and the government's going to listen and it's going to be fine. And that's not enough. It's not enough. That's not doing the work at all. You've All you've done is basically parachuted into someone's community, gotten information and then disappeared and you think that something's going to change and that's just not enough. So it actually is also going to involve you working with the people in those bureaucracies. That's the hard, that's the heavier lift, right? Is actually having them, um, you know, maybe you do a workshop with them. Maybe you do a workshop where you say, okay, let's start by figuring out what is our culture? What's our company culture? What's our, what's our bureaucracy culture? And why is it that we can't get from A to B? Because if people don't see it, then they're not going to be able to actually address any of the issue because you can't address the issue in the community if the people who you're working with are blind to even their own lack of cultural competency, for example. So Mm. it can't just be that you go in and get a little information and report it back. It's never going to change. It has to be that you have to continuously go to communities. You have to bring community members, if they're willing, to go with you, right, to have joint meetings, to um, to actually figure out and develop a plan together. And, and, and that's the tough work about it. I think that's what, you know, people get flustered because they're like, oh, but, you know, I've, I've done the interview. I've, I've, I've brought it to the attention and nothing's happening. Well, no, nothing is going to happen. You should never expect anything to happen with that. Like having that expectation is, is not realistic and it's not, it's not, it's not ideal. That's not how it works. <laughs> right. And I think too many people do. They think, they think, well, I've done this, so it should be fine. And it's just not. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of some stories I've heard people tell me in the past about battles that they've had to have inside the bureaucracy to try to advocate and bring things forward from communities. And a lot of those stories are not getting shared. It's, I don't know, uh, and I kind of understand that when people are employed and they're in these positions, but it'd be really interesting to know more about attempts that are made within these systems to do to, to the harder work like you referred to when you come back from communities and actually turn it into some form of impact and change that could happen then. Another question I'm I'm really curious about, and I, this is way outside my element, but it's I'm curious with this uh, group of uh, co-conspirators, I'll call yeah. them right now, yeah. uh, that I'm working with, is and knowing that they all self-selected in, 
and uh, about 90% of the people that self-selected in were women. So I'm kind of curious to get your thoughts on that too. And and is there a gender aspect of people who are more inclined to be culturally competent and, and want to make changes in these areas? Well, I think the further, again, the further you are from the norm and the more um, injustice you have experienced, the more you want to fight for others. I think that's just natural. Um, and I think for women in particular, especially in, in fields that are male-dominated, I could see that, that totally makes sense to me. Absolutely. Where women's voices are not always upheld and they're not taken seriously and they're not considered equal. Um, it, it makes sense to me that 90% of those who selected would be women. Yeah. Interesting. So you're just making sense of this for me so succinctly. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's perfect. No, thank you. And uh, I'm really interested to reflect on that with them when I uh, get a chance to talk to them again. So thank you for that. Yeah, and I think in providing them with the space to, to talk about it, I think is also important because that can only strengthen their own mission to, to make change and, and to feel, you know, that there's a sense of community amongst them and that this is something that they can do together. I think that can only make it um, more worthwhile, more meaningful in the work and the importance of the work that they're doing, for sure. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, me and uh, my wife are in the middle right now of uh, watching uh, Lessons in Chemistry. I don't know oh, if you've started to watch book. that. No, I, I, oh, I have read you? the book. I oh, is it going to? I don't want you to ruin it for me, Dan. But uh, if it uh, if it keeps getting sadder than it already is into the first couple well, episodes, I'm not sure how uh, my wife's going to get through it because it's a uh, pretty uh, I, crazy. Story. I definitely think. Even though it's set in the 1960s, I I wish I had a trigger warning for some of the chapters that I had to read because I related entirely. Um, really? I I experienced um, abuse. I experienced verbal abuse, almost physical abuse, going through my graduate program. I experienced um, just basically like negligence, um, you know, not being considered equal or, or as capable. And then when you raise your voice being uh, reprimanded or, um, you know, something happening to you and you don't know why, and you're like, why is that? And then you, you think back and you say, ah, because they don't want me to know more than them. They don't want me to excel. They don't want me to have power. They don't want me to know. Um, because now I'm too close into I'm too close into the uh, into the club, right? I need to be in the club to be accepted, but you can't know too much, and and that's where for women in particular and for women of color it becomes very serious. And that lessons in chemistry book I cherish because it's so well written and it so well details what women go through in 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 science. And that's in 1960s. And I'm telling you today in 2023 that I related with a lot of the stories in that book. And that's just sad. I think it's just sad. But it's true. Yeah. And it needs to be told. And it needs to be out there. And uh, and yeah, you know, it's tough. But I think if you find the right support, you can be okay. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. I need to be more support when we watch the next episode because uh, my wife is really triggered by each episode and yeah. uh, and I and I understand it uh, but obviously I don't live what uh, she has in yourself and so many others so it's uh, yeah uh, yeah no, well, thank you but, for sharing your reflections on that I didn't mean to bring yeah. up the book knowing that I didn't no, know you no, had read I, it or anything I'm so happy you did because it's such a good book and I think it's such a, a good example of the nuances of of life as a STEM person, <laughs> as a woman, you know. And I, um, you know, I think it's good that you are watching it with your wife. I think that's fantastic, and you're only improving your your cultural competence by doing it. <laughs> you know. <laughs> oh, definitely. Yeah, I'm getting a lot of lessons. There's no doubt about it. And I know. <laughs> yeah. uh, 
<laughs> on your uh, and I have no problem with humility and and owning it and uh, and trying my best. So, and uh, I know I know on your website you you reference yourself as an ocean equity advocate and like what does that look like on a day to day basis or or when you wake up in the morning and get ready and go out there? Uh, I'd be curious to hear about how you put that into action. Sounds. Well, Sounds superhero-like, but I know you're doing yeah. great things. Well, first I wake up and put on my mermaid tail. And then, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but I kind of do feel like this. <laughs> um, no, I I think it's, for me, it is just being sort of a, a vessel between the two worlds of the ocean and social justice. And... um bringing greater attention to the need for more people that look like me and who are women to be involved in some of these critical conversations um, surrounding, for example, fisheries. Um, you know, there's so many injustices. We have lack of transparency in how um, certain sectors of the industry are run and operated. We have modern day slavery. We have, um, you know, just, I mean, everything, right? Lack of um, understanding of, um, you know, how people are treated out on the high seas. You know, there's no, there's no law. There's no, anyway, I, I could go on and on, but I, I think that that's just one aspect of it. Then you also have local governments that are doing, for example, what the Global North, for example, has come up with the 30 by 30 movement, and they're implementing that out into you know, developing nations and you look at Panama and the way that they've adopted it and they've now protected 51% of their oceans, which is phenomenal, except that is it real? And who is, is, is hurting because of that? And how does that influence protected areas around the country? And how does that influence the people that directly depend on um, fisheries for protein? Um, you know, those are the things that no one is asking. And that's what I mean by ocean equity. Just because we're protecting something doesn't mean that it's it's right for people. And it might not even be right for nature because we don't have enough studies. There aren't enough studies here. I can I can tell you where I am that that say that the, the protected area that we currently have that's been here since 1988. Do we have greater fish biomass and species richness? I ask that question openly because nobody knows. So right. if we don't know and we're marching towards a 20, uh, you know, 30% by 2030, well, what does that mean? Is anyone going to be measuring from this point forward, moving forward until 2030? Is anyone doing studies to make sure that the protected area is actually improving biomass and species richness and diversity? No, the answer is no. So what are we doing? And also, the most complex habitats that support the most biodiversity don't exist inside of the bounds of the marine protected area. So what are we doing? And right. I, I think that that is an issue of ocean equity. Are you, you're telling people they can't go into an area because, you know, this is a form of fortress conservation. You're telling people that they can't fish. You're telling people that they can't practice their cultural way of life. But you don't even know if you're improving the ecosystems in which they depend on. I think that's not yeah. equitable. No, definitely. I'm curious to check in on your positionality there for a second. And right. when you refer to the north, yeah. uh, like what do you mean when you refer to the north? Because I think that's probably different than what I believe is the yeah. north. Well, when I refer to the global north, I think of um, you know high income countries in in the equatorial north right so united states um canada i'm thinking about norway and denmark and um you know uh, the global north right oh, okay yeah because where where i do most of my work is in the north and inuit communities oh, yeah, and, and we're off we're always talking about inequities that we feel are being driven by the south but I don't think what I'm referring to as the South is what you mean by yeah. the South either. No, so. no. The, the global South is not the same as 
as yourself, which is Southern Canada, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, no, it's, uh, it's interesting but, though, to check in on that and see yeah. how that could be confusing. But also it's interesting because even within these high income countries, we have such great inequality, right? And so there is within, you know, a global North country like Canada or the U.S., great disparity, great wealth disparity. And you technically could have your own global South within your global North, which you, we do. That's just, right. we know we do. Maybe in Canada less so than in the U.S. because the U.S. is just on a, on a, a path towards greater and greater wealth gaps, greater and greater education gaps um, and, and medical you know, that's, we don't have to go there, but you all have no. the system that we have. <laughs> that's for another podcast that's, for that's sure. That's entire other situation. <laughs> yeah. But when you talk about ocean inequities, uh, that does make sense to me because uh, in uh, the area where I work in uh, Nanatsivut is an Inuit region in northern mm -hmm. Labrador and a couple of the inequities that quickly come to mind. One is science related and trying to get an equitable portion of uh, science budgets allocated to the north. Like a lot of the science that happens is more in southern Canada. So therefore, uh, some of our northern fisheries and communities don't have the data and information uh, that we would like to have. And I do think there's a bit of a myth in these uh, indigenous knowledge debates that indigenous people might not care about science they very much also care about science and Absolutely. and want in and want information yeah. uh, but if budgets don't get spent into these remote areas uh, mm -hmm. and whatnot we're at a disadvantage and then secondly is the whole idea of access it's it's heartbreaking to me to know that there are fish for example within and adjacent to coastal indigenous communities and they either can't access them at all or if they can it's at uh, such low levels that it's not really feasible to have a economically viable fishery and and again there's no reason why indigenous people shouldn't be permitted to have uh economically viable fisheries right like it's not all there's obviously subsistence, but people have to make livelihoods and and make their way in the current environment. Right. Yeah. And and you know you bring up a good point about the the, the wealth gap. Um, you know this is something that we brought up in the tropical majority paper. Is 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 specifically that you know in in quote unquote global north countries that the majority of wealth and money for research stays in mostly temperate zones and very little goes to tropical countries but then when it does go to tropical countries it's completely extractive so right. not only is there this problem with um the way in which research dollars are distributed but there's also an issue in how you know the work that comes out of that you know who gets cited in the papers citation bias is really serious and it's something that a lot of us don't think about either you know i i definitely think it's important to go out of your way as a scientist to make sure that you are citing people that don't look like you so that mm. their voices can race to the top of some of those journal searches because otherwise it's never going to happen and and that's just a, a hard reality that we have to face yeah, I went through an unfortunate uh, experience there a couple years ago, and I'm certainly not uh, traumatized by it, but it was a bit of an eye-opener when I decided to uh, go through the effort to write a response to an academic article oh. that uh, I felt, uh, well, it completely erased an indigenous point of view and didn't refer to co-management in the least. And trying to operate within the academic structures that exist uh, means that if I want it to be heard, I, the way to do it would be to actually respond in this uh, academic journal. And I guess a long story short, the editor wouldn't, uh, wouldn't publish the rebuttal. And I, I think it was really well done, but at the end of the day, it was 
his prerogative to uh, not publish it. And and maybe it sounds like sour grapes on my part, but I don't think it was. It was a really unfortunate situation where I think both perspectives and everybody would have been better off if they were both uh, published. And it yeah. was kind of my first introduction to seeing how these gateways are in place and 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 knowing how much effort I put in to try to respond in an academic setting just goes to show how hard it would be for someone at the community level to get their perspective heard and, and whatnot. It's, it was a real eye-opener, I got to say. Yeah, that's that's a really good point to bring up. I mean, these gatekeepers, right? Who are they? And they have a lot of power. And um, they have the power to deny all of us access <laughs> uh, to expressing our thoughts and ideas on something. And, um, yeah, it's pretty serious, especially, again, the further you are from the norm. And even if you are the norm, <laughs> you know, get it, getting, getting that published clearly, you know, ticked off someone and, you know, it wasn't going to happen. But, um, again, that's, that's, it, it gives you great pause when you realize how quickly and how easily someone can do that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Well, I don't want to take more of your time today. I saw you had a potential visitor here also demanding your time. <laughs> so uh, uh, was there any, uh, any kind of thoughts or comments you'd like to end off on or share with people listening to this? Matter of always making sure that you, that you put the work in. You know, I think there's a lot of talk lately. Oh, we're going to be anti-racist. Oh, we're going to be, you know, anti-indigenous marginalization. We're going to be anti X, Y, or Z, right? But what does it mean to really truly be those things? And what does it look like? Because I don't think we necessarily have really great examples all the time, particularly in government spaces and in, in, you know, maybe even in fisheries, we don't know in the sciences because we've never actually had it. We don't have an anti-racist STEM society. We just don't. And so what is it, what does that look like for us? And how do we do the work when we don't know exactly what it's supposed to look like? We don't have a structure. We know that there's an equity and we can see where those things are, but then it's one thing to work towards dismantling the inequity, but it's another to work towards dismantling the underlying causes of the inequity. So, so yeah, it's multi-tiered and multifaceted. And, you know, I think a lot of this comes out of fear and you have to be totally fearless. You have to be fearless. And so many of us are forced to be fearless because we don't have a choice. And if you do have the choice, then you need to look even further into yourself and ask, the questions and figure out, you know, what is this going to look like in the future for all of us? So that that's what I yeah. would say. Amazing. No, and, and being fearless in, in some of these systems is, uh, I guess it's just not easy for everybody to be that fearless. And you, you mentioned a, phrase, a turn of phrase there that I, I almost asked you earlier, so I, I got to ask it now because sometimes I'm trying to get my mind around it. And when people refer to doing the work, you got to do the work. I, I think I know what that means, but what what does it mean to you to actually do the work in this context? Like, yeah, what what can it look like for some people that are trying to do the work well, just don't know where to, where to start. start? Yeah, I think. I think it means having a conversation with yourself, right? And figuring out where do you stand in, in the scale of cultural competency? Because you might be at the, at the part where it says, oh, you know, there, there is a, on the scale, there is a section where you could be colorblind. And that's a dangerous place to be. Are you colorblind? I don't want to be not seen. Nobody doesn't want to be seen. And so what's, you know, how are you going to move from this, this narrative of, oh, we're all equal and none of us are different. No, we are. Stop it. Move on. Get to the next level. How are you going to get yourself to the next level? Right? Because nobody right. wants to deal with this nonsense, you know, colorblindness. It's nonsense. And then 
getting to the next level and then the next level and the next level, right? Um, and so I think to move yourself from one to the other requires you to actually take a look at yourself. Where are you on the scale? And then putting in the work means, do you need to read? Maybe you need to read a lot. Maybe you, there are some books that were not part of your formal education that you need to go back and take a look at. Um, you know, there are so many pivotal books that I've read in my life that made me think about my positionality and 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 what I can do. You know, I think I read in maybe 1999. I read Cornell West's Race Matters, and and that changed my life. Um, that was an important book for me to read at the time that I read it. I'm not saying that's a book that everyone should go out and read. I'm just saying that's something that I felt for me at that time in my life I needed to read. Um, Chimamanda's Americana, one of the best books that I've read. Um, you know, there are just so many books out there that can help you understand other people's perspectives. And I think if you've never been challenged to read someone else's perspectives, it might be time for you to start doing that. And I think reading is really powerful, and um, is a is that's why in the U.S. right now they're banning all these books because they know the power that words have, and and it's really important that we do continue to read and learn about each other the best way that we can. And Ibram X. Kendi's books, uh, I mean, there are so many books that you should read <laughs> out there to to start yourself on your way um, for sure. Uh. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thanks so much. And uh, I hope we're going to cross paths again really soon. I'm not sure how often you uh, cross through Canada, uh, but uh, I hope we do get to work together again and yes. chat some more. And uh, it's been really great to meet you this fall. Yeah, I'm, I'm so happy that our paths crossed. And I love the work that you're doing. And I love that you're bringing attention to this really important um, component to our collective survival. It's really about that. Really, I fundamentally believe that cultural competence is inextricably linked to our, our, our collective survival, for sure. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> okay, thanks so much. You take care. Thank you, Jamie. You are listening to the Co-Management Commons podcast. Thank you for learning about shared decision-making around valuable fish and wildlife species with Indigenous peoples in Canada. Let's all care about honoring the spirit and intent of Indigenous rights, treaties, and land claim agreements. Thank you for listening.